serious, serious note. I'm getting parched before we go through this. I'm struggling. And in desperation, I turn to my mother and I say, Mother dear, canst thou assist me? Do you have any gum or a mint or something? As I'm about to go up and and help in, in leading the songs. And she gives me a mint the size of a silver dollar. It's like an everlasting gobstopper in my mouth. Lord, help us all. I'm okay now. Thank you, though. So... Now, now that I've already had my mouth full of this massive ball of sugar, thank you for the help, Mom. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Doreen. Thank you all. <sighs> so, as we are um, continuing this, we are getting back into our, uh, our journey through the book of Luke as he writes this uh, letter, as it were. It, it's a book that's written for all of us, but he's writing specifically to a friend. That's why I refer to it as a letter, because... When I write to somebody, that's what I would call it. So as Luke is writing this gospel story, he is, uh, as we saw in the very beginning, establishing for us a foundation for a confident faith. He says, I'm writing this, and in chapter 1, verse 4, he says specifically, I'm writing this that you might know the certainty of what you've been taught. That we might have a confident faith that we know that what we have received is true and orthodox and worth believing. Luke has investigated these things for himself. And he's investigated them in order to put together an orderly account. He does the same thing in the book of Acts, which is essentially Luke volume 2. So we go up through Christ's uh, uh, ascension and then into the, uh, the continuation of what happens in the early church after our Lord returns to the right hand of the Father. And then through the book of Acts, we get up to chapter 28, and we begin to realize that we here in the church are Acts 29. We are the next chapter. We are writing that chapter now. So as we continue with this faith journey that we're on, we need, just as Theophilus did, to have a foundation to understand not just religious beliefs, but what did the Lord himself do and teach for those of us who follow him. Today we are in Luke chapter 6. I would invite you to turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible of your own or you don't have a Bible with you, then uh, we want you to have one. So by all means, uh, put your hands up. We'll get you one. We've got some here. And uh, Michael will make sure that you've got one. So uh, if you need a Bible, just put your hand up and he'll, he'll connect you with that. Uh, but you want to be able to be in the Word of God, not just hearing about the Word of God. You want to be able to know for yourself what does the Bible say not what does the guy up front with a microphone say. Because that doesn't mean anything. He might have a giant ball of mint in his mouth. You never know what's going to happen. What you need to know is what God says. So we, in Luke chapter 6, see Jesus having pulled the twelve out from the larger group of disciples. Disciples are followers, learners. You might think of them as apprentices. Those who are following the Master, learning from the Master, becoming like the Master. That's us. And from them, he pulled 12 as apostles, special messengers. They had a unique assignment given to them personally by Jesus Christ 
to carry forth the gospel. Now, all of us are called to be witnesses. We're all called to be messengers. All of his disciples, we see this uh, continue as, as we go along, and, and he calls all of his disciples to be messengers. But the apostles have a special role that he's called them aside to. And immediately following that, he goes back down to a, a flat area in this mountain place, and he delivers this sermon. Very closely parallels in many ways the Sermon on the Mount that we see in uh, Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7. But many would say this is not the same. It's just the same content repeated. So this is often called the Sermon on the Plain. Some say it is the same. I say, who cares? What matters is we want to know what Jesus is saying because it's not claimed. It would matter if, if the Bible was claiming they were the same. Then it matters. Because the Bible must be completely true or none of it is worth hanging our hats on. So the Bible cannot, nor does it, contradict itself. If there seems to be an, a, a contradiction, that's on me to figure out where I'm not understanding correctly. But what matters here is the content that Jesus is teaching. Luke is, is writing this with a different purpose than Matthew, both to convey the life and teaching of Christ... But Luke is specifically writing to a largely Gentile audience. Luke is the only Gentile writer of Scripture, the only non-Jewish, non-Hebrew writer of Scripture. And he is passing this on to Theophilus and through Theophilus to the church at large and to us so that we can have this confident foundation for our faith. Jesus here is delivering a, a, a message that's full of what you might call radical teaching. And uh, if you've been around or if you've uh, been on social media and connected with me or the church, then you know that I'm challenging all of us to read through this chapter at least once a week, every week while we're going through this, because we're going to go through different pieces of it. But we need to see this sermon as a whole. So picking up, I'm going to, to read this and you can follow along with me. We're going to focus in on verses 27 to 38. But we're going to begin reading with verse 20. And we'll go through the whole thing. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that's how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. 
Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, then what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have given us your word. Help us to recognize it as your word. That this isn't some book of religious teachings. but This is what you actually want us to know of yourself. That you have revealed yourself through these words that have been written. Without error in the original language absolutely infallible. Not one of your words can fall short of its purpose. Lord, we thank you for that. How could we possibly thank you enough? Forgive us for taking this gift for granted. We devote ourselves so much more to reading other materials and watching television and and living life as it unfolds before us, but we miss out on this incredible gift as you have poured out your heart and your will to us. And we think, oh, if only God would tell me what he wants. And you have. Teach us to listen. Teach us to be diligent. Not to receive your word as we wish it were, but to receive it as you intend it. Lord, as we open your word today, be honored, be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's it's an important thing as we look at, at this text to recognize that it's not just a behavioral text. It's behaviors that are result of reality. This is one of the things that that we so often miss in our Christian faith. We get caught up in the religious aspects of it. We follow traditions. We get caught up in morality. And there's nothing wrong with traditions. And morality is a good and useful thing and necessary in society. And clearly, we have a God who believes in righteousness. He created it. It's a reflection of his heart. Everything that we know as good is because it is from God's character. And everything that we know as bad is because it is the opposite of God's character or the absence of God's presence in it. So, that's, I'm not saying, please don't hear me saying, please don't hear me saying that you should go out and be immoral. 
Some teach that. It sounds laughable to us, but it is being taught. What I'm telling you is, if that's your Christianity, if that's your faith, is living a good life, having the right appearance, then you have utterly and entirely missed the boat. If you're not doing that, you have also missed the boat because you haven't been changed. Last week we talked about the first portion of this as Jesus lays out these blessings and woes and we discussed the idea that he's not condemning rich people and happy people and popular people. He's saying, look, if that's what you're finding your strength in, then, man, I feel bad for you because that's all you get. You got your reward here. But there's a greater reality. Understanding that all of our suffering is small compared to that reality. All of our glory here is small compared to that reality is what undergirds all the rest of this. As Jesus is going through here, notice there's a connecting word. He gives the blessings and woes, and then in verse 27, he starts with one of the most important words in Scripture. What is it? You got it in front of you. What is it? Don't be afraid. But we have to find the but in Scripture whenever we can. Please don't get weird about that. We have to find the conjunction but in Scripture. We have to find the therefores in Scripture. These are the linking words that connect us to truth. Here is a truth, but understand this contrast. Here is a truth, therefore understand the ramifications of it. If we don't get it, then we don't understand the whys. That's the problem so often with religion, is we have a lot of what's and not a lot of why's. Do you ever wonder why people went to church more often before? Not so much now. Do you ever wonder why kids who grow up in the church go off to college and then never darken a church doorstep again? Maybe it's because they understand all the stuff they're supposed to do, but they have no clue why any of this matters. Maybe we failed to teach that. Maybe, even more importantly, we failed to live that. So as we look at what, what Jesus is teaching here, what we're going to see here in 27 to 38 is springing out of the blessings and woes. As Jesus is saying, look, the real life, the greater reality, is bigger than the circumstances of this life. Whatever you're going through, if it's good, if it's bad, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it's temporary. All of this is temporary. The worst scenario in your imagination remains temporary. This is all passing. And the unseen, the spiritual, is what is actually real. As we go forward, he's saying, because of this reality, this is what life looks like to those who get it. Let's break it down a little bit. Verses 27, uh, 27 and 28, he gives a, a description, if you would, if you will, of what this looks like. Because of this greater reality, you are blessed knowing that there's more coming if you're in bad shape. You are, you know, woe to you, I feel bad for you, let me warn you about leaning on your own strength if you're in good shape. But to all of you who are willing to hear this, who are paying attention to me, I say, love your enemies. Immediately, that's like where the record scratch comes in. Wait, what? Love your enemies? 
Um, Jesus, I was with you before. You know, the love thing, that's good. But I got to tell you, this loving your enemies thing, that's a little too much. That's kind of stupid, and I don't like it, and I ain't going to do it. That's where our hearts naturally go, and you have to know that if you're hearing this for the first time, now all of us here, every one of us, regardless of whether this is the first time you've ever stepped into a church, all of us have, in Western society have been influenced by Christendom, by the presence of Christian teaching. All of us have. Our nation is founded on principles that come from the Judeo-Christian value system, from the teachings of the Bible. Even our secular founding fathers still found themselves in those values. Western society has been shaped by that, and primarily, largely, from the, from the Reformation. We've seen so much of that shaping us. So if you've never read the Bible, you've still heard this turn-the-other-cheek, love-your-enemy stuff. Imagine you've never heard it. Imagine all you know is what makes sense logically. Because even when, though we've heard that, it still is absolutely contrary to everything within us. Imagine I walk up to you right now, Dave, and I slap you right in the face. Is your first reaction going to be, let me give you a hug. <laughs> Thank you for that. Of course not. That's not natural. That's weird. Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to something weird. Something that is not natural to you. Bear in mind, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to people who are already following him, who have already embraced the reality that he is Messiah, that he is both God and man, that he has authority over the physical and spiritual realms, that he is able to say, this is how life works. But in this crowd also are unbelievers or folks who know that something special is happening. They want something in their life, physical healing, want to get rid of whatever demons are tormenting them. And they know that Jesus can give them stuff. So they haven't embraced him as master, as Lord, but they do recognize there's something cool here. So they're here hearing this even though they're not his disciples yet. So as he's teaching this to his disciples, a bunch of unbelievers are also hearing it. It's a very interesting dynamic that happens every week in every church. Everywhere. There is no such thing as a church that has more than a handful of people that is all believers. And if it is, we're probably not doing the job. Because we need people who don't believe to see something different in us so that they want what we have so they can come and find Christ. If you're not having that in, in church, then you've got some issues. Not with your programs, with your life. He says, for you who are listening, I'm telling you this, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, when it says bless those who curse you, we might think of saying, you know, bless you when you sneeze or, you know, speaking this word of blessing. That's not the implication here. The, the nature of this idea of blessing them is to do something to be a blessing to them, to actively seek their good. That doesn't even make sense. Why is he saying this? He goes on. 
gives the example of this. What, what does this look like? If I'm going to do this, I'm going to love my enemies, do good to those who hate me, bless those who curse me, uh, pray for those who mistreat me. It looks like this. If someone slaps you on the cheek, <laughs> tell them they can do it on the other side too. Weird. Okay. We've heard it a lot. I think often we dismiss it. Ah, Jesus is just using hyperbole here. And, and perhaps that's a little bit true, but he is telling us if we believe what he said, that reality is bigger than our circumstances, bigger than what happens to us now, bigger than our suffering in this life or our comfort in this life, then that frees me to live a supernatural life in Christ where I can love those who revile and hate me. I can look to bless, to do good to those who are looking to harm me. That is so far outside of how normal justice works, it's almost unthinkable. Makes it easy to dismiss. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. That's tunic in, in the older NIV. <clears throat> Give to everyone who asks you. The implication is a beggar, someone who is, who is begging you for something. Give. Don't worry about whether you're going to get it back. Don't worry about whether you can afford it even. Give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Man, there's so much in here. We could spend weeks on just this section that we're in. We don't have time to do that or we'll never get through Luke. So uh, if you have questions, hit me up. We'll discuss them on the podcast or we can discuss them in person. But here's the thing. When we say do to others what you would have them do to you, we are assuming, Jesus is assuming he can do that because he knows what reality is that you actually want the best for yourself. You want your own spiritual best. You want um, others to take you at your word, to, to not seek retaliation against you, all of these things. So don't do as I, I've... <laughs> I remember doing this when I was younger, and, and I know I've, I've talked to others who have done the same thing. Maybe you've done the same thing. I don't want to disobey, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. So I just redefine it. I said, well, I would want somebody to hold me accountable for what I did wrong. I, I would want to be punished. You're a liar. <laughs> Plain and simple. I don't have a better way to say it. That's not what you want. It might be what you need. It's not what you want. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the summary of what he said in the preceding verses. Love your enemies. It looks like this. Let me sum this up for you. Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. Now, he, he goes a little bit farther and develops this. So we've got this idea that if we're going to, uh, to belong to Christ, we're going to belong to God, then we need to live a certain way. And then he develops it. Before we get into this development, let me make sure that we're really clear on our core reality. There's a reason that we have this core reality every week. Because there is a single point that we need to get laser focused on. And there are lots of other points and lots of applications, but it's really easy for us uh, as church folks to come up with all these different 
applications, self-help things, practical things. That's all well and good, but it might not be the point of the passage. Jesus is bringing all this together in a single point, and we want to grasp that. That's why we, we keep this boiled down to one main point with other subpoints. That's this. Those who belong to God must love like God. Those who belong to God must love like God. Say that with me. Those who belong to God must love like God. So he's talking to his disciples. Those who belong to God must go through Christ. That will be developed throughout the book. There is only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus. If you are a disciple of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, I like to use the term Christ follower, the disciple, because lots of people call themselves Christians, right? We think of Christianity as a religion. When we talk about a religion, by definition, we're talking about a set of beliefs that you uh, assent to, a set of behaviors that you adhere to. That's not what we're talking about. That's, when I say it's, it's, it's relationship, not religion, that's not just some evangelical mantra that we're supposed to say. That's what the Bible has taught from before Christ walked the earth. God has always wanted, demanded, a one-on-one -on -one and group direct relationship with His people. He is reality, not religion. It's not trying to get us to just think alike. It's a new life in Him. So if we belong to Him in Christ, then we need to look like Him. We need to love like Him. As we uh, break this down, He develops this starting in verse 32. He says, if you, if you love those who love you, if you do good to those who are good to you, if you lend to people expecting to get paid back, especially with interest, what, great, super. I should be excited about that? Doesn't everybody do that? If somebody's nice to you, wouldn't it be weird for you to be a jerk to them? Everybody, with some exceptions, but as a rule, everybody is nice to people who are nice. It takes something very unique, something outside of myself, to be nice to people who spit in my face. To be nice to people who badmouth my church. Shoot, it's hard to be nice to people who badmouth your sports team. How much harder is it when they mistreat your children, your loved ones, the people that belong to you and to whom you belong? So hard then to love them, those enemies. He's saying the rest of this stuff, come on, really? You should be rewarded for this? You should get credit for that? Everybody does that. Verse 35, but love your enemies. If you want to look like God, if you want to do the things that God does, love your enemies. When you do this, then your reward is great. Why? Same thing he said in, in last week's passage. Because your reward is in heaven. If you get all your reward here, okay, fine. <laughs> They're nice to you, you're nice to them, super, let's move on. They were really bad to you. They mocked you. They made prejudiced statements toward you. They tore you down. They belittled your family. 
They harmed you in, in some meaningful, tangible way. They ripped you off. They stole from you. They violated you. Now, love, that's something else. Now your father rewards you because you didn't get any reward out of that. Notice it says, then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not in any way a cause and effect situation. Jesus is not saying here, it is not something you can even logically infer here, that by doing these things, it will make you a child of God. That would be contrary to everything else that Jesus teaches, everything else throughout the Scriptures, even in the Old Testament. Yes, doing right is a sign of belonging to God. But it doesn't earn you credit with God because you never do everything right. And you almost never, I could probably say never, but I'm a little nervous to do that, do the right thing with entirely pure motives. Even my best stuff, I tend to have a little, as Bing Crosby said in, in White Christmas, a little larceny operating. I got an angle. I want to get points with God. I want to have people think well of me. It's easy if I'm in sales, if I'm in customer service, to do nice, good, kind things, to go out of my way to please my customers. Why? Because that's the job, man. I'm going to get stuff out of that. I'm going to get better sales, better production. I'm going to, I'm going to be promoted. That's not this. Jesus is saying those who mistreat you, those who are ungrateful and wicked to you, if you want to look like God, those are the people you've got to treat nicely. Those are the people you have to sacrifice for. You'll be children of the Most High because you'll look like Daddy. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. And he summarizes this section saying, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. I would encourage you to memorize that. To memorize Luke 6, 36. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. If we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to belong to God, then we need to love like God. We don't need to just love because God loves. We need to love in the manner... And with the generosity that God loves with, right? So if, if I'm going to love like God, I have to do it His way. We'll see that in a few moments. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. That's an easy one to memorize. Let's do it right now together. It's Luke 6.36. Say that. Luke 6.36. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Luke 6, 36. When you're memorizing, I want to encourage you to use the reference at the beginning and the end simply because it gets it in your mind. Then if you stumble on the words, you can find it, right? So we want to get that in there. Luke 6, 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Let's do it together. We're going to say the reference, verse, reference. Luke 6, 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Luke 6, 36. I remembered, Kayla. I did it right. So. He goes on to to bring in the, the negative side of this and to show that there's a big principle at work. In verse 37, he says, don't judge and you will not be judged. Now, don't misunderstand. He's not saying don't discern. 
And he's not saying that if you're just cool with everybody, that God's going to overlook everything you've got going on in your life. So if I'm a, if I'm a, you know, a, a bank robber or, a, you know, whatever, I'm, I'm going to live the thug life, right? But I'm okay with everybody else. I don't want to judge anybody. Then I have no consequences from that. Really? Does anybody really believe that, that that's what he's saying? Of course it isn't. He's giving a principle here. This is, this is really a proverb section in this piece. What he's saying is the way you treat others, it will come back to you. It'll come back to you in this life as a rule, not always, but as a rule. Generous people get treated well. Stingy people, nobody's looking to do them any favors. Right? Think of Ebenezer Scrooge. Nobody was really excited to do good things for Scrooge because he, he's just not nice. Although Scrooge McDuck is funny with the accent. But <clears throat> Do not judge, you will not be judged. Do not condemn, you won't be condemned. Forgive, you'll be forgiven. Give, it will be given to you. These are principles of life, proverbial statements that he's making. But in these principles, there is a there is a response. There's a reward, both earthly and eternal, that comes from this when we live like Christ. Don't misunderstand. Suffering is part of this life for everyone. Suffering is specifically part of it for the Christ follower. And if you get hung up on trying to avoid pain, trying to avoid suffering, trying to make sure that life is fair, you will be extremely frustrated and disappointed. That's not how it works. There is no fair. Okay? What we deserve is hell and damnation forever. All of us. So praise God that it's not fair. Jesus took this from me. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Learn to forgive. Be generous. And when you do this, it comes back to you. A good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over. Picture a, a farmer trying to get grain into a sack. You're going to get everything in there that you can. You're going to shake it to get the, the, the air pockets out of there so everything settles in. And there's so much of it that it's overflowing. That's how God's going to reward you, how it's going to come back to you. For with the measure you use, again, a summary statement, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is putting this, this into a very simple perspective. If you want to look like God, then you've got to love like God. And if you're going to belong to God, if you're going to be His child, you need to bear resemblance to your Father. And your Father loves those who don't love Him. I'm going to say that again because I've seen a lot of people uh, saying that that's not the case. People from my own theological background, they're wrong. God loves those who don't love him. He is kind to the ungrateful, to the wicked. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Right? So if, if you're a farmer who goes to church and honors the Sabbath and loves your neighbor, and you've got a farmer next door who's just a wretch, just a horrible dude, right? And it rains, in case you're wondering, God's not going to cause the rain to fall on your fields and then stop it at the fence row so that he doesn't get anything. The Lord is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. 
And if I'm honest with myself, this is something that Jesus really drives home over and over in his teaching and in his life. If I'm honest with myself, as the Apostle Paul was honest with himself, and I recognize I am that ungrateful and wicked person. I have been that. I was willing to reject his love. And yet, he chooses to save us. I would take you to Romans 8 to develop that, but we don't have time and we're moving on to other things. Let's, let's press into our points here. Our core reality is that those who belong to God must love like God. It's perfectly natural to be good to those who are good to us and to seek retribution and justice when we've been wronged. That's natural. Jesus calls his followers past natural justice and law to supernatural personal love and mercy as a reflection of God and his mercy toward us. Some have said wrongly, a Roman emperor said that Christianity was a threat because all this love and mercy stuff led to anarchy and chaos and undoes, it undoes the civil law. Not at all. And, and uh, Augustine was very clear on this in developing this, that, that the reality of it is this is not in any way saying that we don't have civil law. Justice must be done. Wickedness must be thwarted, and this is why God gives us government, so that we can have a rule of law. If not, then those who, are, who have a propensity, as John Calvin would say, who had a propensity toward evil, it only whets their appetite. If somebody wants to come and continue to do this, and I say, there's no consequences, <laughs> all right. At some point, the little piglet's got to get into the brick house or the big bad wolf is going to eat them. So you've got to have justice that comes. But on a personal level, what Jesus is saying is, don't let this go to your heart. Don't let your heart become that brick house. Guard your heart from evil thoughts. Guard your heart from the devil's schemes. Don't try to guard your heart from pain. That doesn't work. It changes you. We need to be like our Father. We need to move from natural to supernatural. There are, are a handful of things that we're going to see here. Five things. Retaliation, limitation, elevation, identification, and compensation. Let's move through it. Retaliation is our sin nature. It's natural for us. In our sin nature, in who we are, who all of us are by birth and by choice, to seek retribution. Now, I, on a lighthearted example of this, when I was in high school, I, uh, I went to Bible camp, and some kid had the unmitigated gall to sneak up behind me and hit me with a water balloon. Brother should have known better. So I went and got a five-gallon bucket. I might have learned this from my father. I got a five-gallon bucket and soaked that boy. Guess who wasn't going to hit me with a water balloon again? I threw a snowball at my dad. My dad came at me with a scoop shovel full of snow. He didn't hit me with a scoop shovel. He's throwing snow at me. I want to make that clear. That's natural. And it's fun when we're talking about water balloons and we're talking about snow. 
but it's deadly in real life. This was common in, in the ancient world. If you, you know, cut off my finger, I'm going to cut off your hand, your arm. I may slay you. So God instituted law, civil law, practical law, that in this particular case was not unique uh, to the Jews. That you see it in uh, many ancient codes, that there's a limit to your retribution. Hence, as Jesus says it in Matthew, quoting the Old Testament, hence the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, we might look at that and say, well, God's requiring it. No, what he's saying is justice must be done, and it's right and good that it should be done, but it does not mean that you, know, you injure somebody, they lose an eye, you cut off their head. There is a limit. So there's retaliation in our sin nature, and there is a limitation as God puts a righteous restriction on our natural tendency to seek justice through retribution. We start out with the natural retaliation. God, by establishing righteous and just laws that serve as deterrence, that restrict evil, this is the role of government, to limit evil, to protect the innocent. And there are punishments that are suited to that. But to say it as we might say it today, the punishment needs to fit the crime. So God puts restrictions on that to keep us in a righteous mode rather than in just an angry mode. So we go from retaliation to God's limitation in the law. That was what law did. That's the purpose of law even now, is to restrict evil, to deal with sin. Law is always rooted in the flesh to bring the character qualities of God to bear on the nature of our sinful flesh to do our own thing. But Jesus is calling us higher. We see this elevation to a supernatural love. He's calling us to go beyond just our natural tendency that I'm going to get mine. You're going to pay for that. You're going to suffer. You made me suffer, and you're going to suffer. You hurt mine, I'm going to hurt yours. It's the Chicago way, for those of you who remember the Untouchables movie from 1987. If not, you should watch it unless you're too young because it's an R-rated movie. But, great picture of this. As Sean Connery says to Kevin Costner, what are you prepared to do? He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the natural way. But there are laws that restrict that. You can't live that way. You can't lower yourself to Capone's level, De Niro in the movie. We have to keep within the law. Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's different than that. It's higher than that. I'm telling you, love your enemies. They harm you, you seek to help them, to heal them, to look at them through my eyes, to serve them the way Jesus did. He gave us a perfect description, and he lived it out in his perfect example. If we're going to elevate to a supernatural love, to love like Christ, he tells us in the book of John, Greater love has no one than this, that a man lays his life down for his friends. And here he's saying, if you're going to lay your life down, that, that's a great love. That's the greatest love there is. Can you love your enemies that way? Jesus did. 
Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies. We would just as soon spit in his eye as receive his grace. And in that state, he died for us and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Roman soldiers there to kill him. They nailed him to a cross. They pierced his side. They mocked him, stripped him naked, beat him beyond recognition. And he says, Father, forgive them. You want to follow Jesus? You want to belong to God? You need to love like God. Supernatural love. It's an elevation of it. And that's our identification. To belong to Him, we love like Him. It's a real connection. It's not a, it's not a superficial connection. It's not a, you know, I believe this. When the money's on the line, when the rubber meets the road, when it's not theory anymore, when we're not sitting in church just having someone preach to us, then what? Can we look like Daddy? Because if we belong to Him, if we are children of the Most High God, and we have the Spirit of God living in us, then we already know in our hearts we are called to better. We see this elevation not as an optional thing. Don't get me wrong, not as an easy thing. It's never easy. But I'm not doing it anymore. He's doing it in me. He's transforming me from the inside out as I renew my mind, according to Romans 12.2. As I renew my mind, He's transforming me from the inside out. And in that process, in that process, we identify with our Father. We look like Him. But lest you think this is just a a requirement. God longs to pour out blessing on his children. And he's telling us there is a compensation. There's a reward. There's an eternal reward. This is our focus. But <clears throat> whether it's in this life or the next, we need to recommend to our own minds this principle that my choices determine my destiny. The measure I use will be the measure that is used for me. Jesus, in, in our model prayer that he gives us, if you look at Matthew's uh, parallel here, the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And he prays this prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, but it's, it's really an example prayer for us, our Father who art in heaven, you all know that, right? But he says, pray to God, to forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. I'll just ask you, do you really want God to deal with you in that way? Do you really want God to do with you, with your sin and what you deserve for your sin against Him, the way you handle other people's sins against you? I don't. Because my natural tendency is to seek justice. My 
restricted, limited, modified, righteous tendency is to at least limit that and not to destroy them. But I want to limit that and be, be righteous, but they still have to pay. But if I have to pay for my sin, I go to hell for eternity. There is no in-between. It's life or it's death. Because everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. Eternal destruction. Without end. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. If God were to treat me the way I tend to treat other people when they've wronged me, that's what I would get. But instead, he chose to put his own son on display. To have him humiliated and mocked and reviled and rejected. To be beaten so bloody that you could barely recognize him as a man. To be hung on a cross, spat upon. That thorny crown jammed into his skull for me. While I was his enemy. For you. While you were his enemy. He's called us to treat our enemies the same way. Why does it matter? It matters because this is everything. To be his and to look like him in a very real connection. And yes, there is a compensation. He does bless us when we live in him. Maybe not the way you think. Maybe not the prosperity that you're seeking. But he blesses us with supernatural blessings. Eternal blessings. And it will be measured to us the way we measure it out. And if we miss this, then all of this church-going stuff is a waste. It's meaningless. Because it's just religion. It's just doing things. Checking it off my list. Not being in a relationship with my father so that I look like him. It changes the way we interact with people. If I can live in the reality that there is more to life than this life. In fact, I should be reading this entire passage with, with Colossians 3, 1 and 2 in mind. Because we are seated with Him in the heavenly realms. We are part of Christ. We are joined to Christ. We need to set our minds on things above. Not on earthly things. We need to bear this in mind. And all of the commands of Scripture, all of the descriptions of behavior are rooted in this. Man, get your eyes off the temporary. Lift your gaze. Be like Him. It changes everything. As we wrap this up, we need, we need so desperately to rip our own hearts out of the behavior modification mode. It's not just trying to do better. It's belonging to Him. He's called us. He's called us to Himself. 
Romans 8 tells us that the sinful heart doesn't submit to God. In case you thought you were chasing after him. I'm not even capable of that. I'm so sinful in myself that unless God reaches in and snatches me out, I'm done. If I'm rowing my own boat, I'm going to hell. and There's no other option. But he who knew no sin became sin for you and me, that we might become the righteousness of God. Not of our own doing, not by works of righteousness. Heavens, no. But according to his mercy, he saved us. And if this is how God treats us when we're his enemies, now that we are his children, ought we not, out of gratitude, to seek to live the same way he has called us to live, made us to live, and lived for us? We must be merciful, just as our Father is merciful. Let's pray together. Father, um, oh, Father, I'm so bad at this. We read your word, and, and, and it's so clear. It's, it's so clear we can't escape it, and yet I'm so bad at it. Forgive me, Lord. Forgive us, oh, to be like thee, pure as thou art. Lord, fill us with compassion and mercy that we might forgive, that we might love our enemies in ways that we are absolutely, utterly incapable of. We can only do when we are consumed and filled with the power of your love in us. Lord, teach us to renew our minds by feasting on the scriptures, by spending time in communication with you, listening to what you teach us in your word as you reveal your heart to us. And to seek your face. Father, we know we're going to fail. We know we're going to stumble and struggle. And and we thank you for your grace to us even in that. to look more and more like Jesus every day. Lord, fill us, consume us, sweep away all of the junk of our lives by the power of your love. We pray this in Christ's name.